Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Zippel, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Well, we couldn't have 100 episodes of the Development Debrief without having one dedicated to plan giving. So here we are at episode 99. I promise this was not intentional. I'm all about plan giving, but this is the first time we focused on it. Our guest this week, Rich Good, tells us about how he manages a plan giving portfolio and how he prioritizes his time. I really agree with a lot of his tips and hope you enjoy what he has to share. Let's learn a little bit more about Rich. He has two degrees from the University of Notre Dame, a Bachelor of Arts and a Law degree. After practicing in downtown Chicago, Rich left the practice of law in 1995 to devote his energies to fundraising in the area of plan giving. Rich worked at the Archdiocese of Chicago and Lurie Children's Foundation before joining the team at DePaul University in 2017. Rich was the president of the Chicago Council on Plan Giving from 2005 to 2007. Rich has spoken on plan giving topics and published articles, including in the Journal of Gift Planning. Now let's get started. Rich, welcome to the Development Debrief. Thanks for having me. Plan giving is still a bit mysterious. More and more schools are investing in it and people are educating themselves. But what was it like for you to develop the technical language and understanding that you needed to feel confident as you started working in plan giving? I guess I was a little lucky, Catherine, in that, you know, I have the law degree. I took wills, trusts, and estates in, in, uh, and liked it uh, in law school a few years before I started in plan giving. And it came kind of quickly. Uh, about six months into my first plan giving job, I went to an R&R Newkirk. I don't know if people on this podcast remember that name, but it was a plan giving vendor five-day seminar in uh, Laguna Beach, California in January. Nice. Yeah, so <laughs> it wasn't too bad of a place to be, but I felt like with the head start I'd gotten, that caught me right up on the technical language. But I got to be honest with you, in the 20s, I, I, we don't even want to think of it, 27 years since, I realized that the technical language is about 2% of it. <laughs> that's sort of what I think too, but I think that that's what deters people from it, ironically. Yeah, it's it's good for all of us in plan giving that everyone else thinks it's so complicated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It makes us seem more precious than we actually are. <laughs> uh, and I'm not gonna, I don't mean to disrupt that at all, but just between me and you, that's not really true. And 98% of it is listening and 98% of it. So what professional experience brought you to this work? Give us a sense of, of how you found yourself here. Well, I had uh, got out of law school and began practicing law and in you know, courtroom trials and things like that and found that, you know, I was getting better at it, but it didn't really suit me. It didn't engage my passions Be prior to law school. Uh, I did some volunteer work. I was interested in, in doing something that I um, had a lot of meaning for me as, as my career. And I had never thought about or heard of plan giving uh, until a friend of mine uh, was uh, in plan giving and was about to leave his job and said, you should think about this. I know you're not positively happy about being a lawyer. A lot of lawyers do what I do. 
it involves a lot of soft skills and people skills that I think you have. And I said, I would like to look further into that. And then it was kind of like a fish to water. I really liked it from day one. Do you consider yourself a major gifts officer as well as a planned gifts officer? I can explain why I asked that question. I think, you know, often planned gifts are major gifts and there's been a lot of conversation about how we think about those things and should we separate them or not? Uh, What are your thoughts there? My first job, I was the plan giving officer and I was not asked to do major gifts. And I stayed in that job a long time. It was a good, it was a great job for where I was in my life and I learned a lot, but I felt this little inkling of like, I don't really know how to do major gifts. And, and, and again, in my second job, I wasn't tasked to do major gifts. And the gift of my last five years at DePaul, and I don't even know that they expected this. I thought, well, this is higher ed now. I got I to gotta up my game. And I kind of taught myself to be a major gift officer as well as a plan giving officer. And Catherine, it, it has been an incredible gift professionally. It has been an incredible gift as far as the me getting a kick out of my job. And I wish I had done it sooner. So I very much consider myself a gift officer. And right. the one, I consider myself the gift officer at the poll that happens to know the most about plan giving on the team, but very much a gift officer. And I, I, I would say to anybody that is in plan giving, and it's more of an exclusively plan giving job, if you learn major gifts and you grow your confidence in that, and, and one thing I learned, Catherine, is I'd already been doing major gifts. Exactly. Wasn't thinking of it that way. But even the added pressure of hard goals and things like that have been just a gift to me. Uh, it's fun. And I nothing can stop you if you have both arrows in your quiver, plan giving and major gifts. And I always say, you can pull me together a list based on the most incredible data, the, the deepest dive you could in the data. I don't know whether someone is a plan gift donor, a major gift donor, a blended gift donor, a non-philanthropic person until I meet them. Mm -hmm. Uh, All the data in the world is not going to tell me that until I sit down across the coffee table or lunch at a diner or whatever and talk to them and more importantly, listen to them. Um, Before I know, they they might have all the indications of a plan giving donor and they would have never in a million years think of including the charity in their estate plan. And they might have 12 kids but plan are thinking to themselves. I just had someone say this to me the day before yesterday. They're getting their inheritance from me now. And I've told them that I'm helping them. I'm helping my grandkids get through college. That's their inheritance. I intend to leave my estate at the end of my life to charity. Data would not have shown you that. No. He has kids, he has grandkids. That's his mindset. You have to talk to him to find that out. So, so yes, I consider myself both. <laughs> you said that you taught yourself major gifts. What did that entail? Just getting out there and doing it and making those yeah. calls and making sure I was out making visits. The same thing you learn, you know, your first year if you're a major gift officer. Emails followed up by phone call, followed up by another phone call, and waiting a few weeks so you don't feel like you're stalking them. Then another email followed up by. And, you know, you think, oh, these people don't want to meet with me and you get your brain going on that kind of stuff. And then someone says, no, no, I was just really busy. Uh, I do want to meet with you. And, you know, maybe that happens one time out of five, but that one time out of five can be a big deal. Um, And so you learn to get the thick skin and not worry about it and not think like if I would have worded that email more perfectly, 
you know, what's the, what's so-and-so's secret? So-and-so's secret is that they're relentless, that they're fearless, that they're hitting it. And really, it was just a matter of starting to do it. And then growing in confidence. You know, you know, with anything, if you believe, you know, your email will probably show it if you believe that you're, hey, I can do this. So it was really just doing it, I think. For people who are listening who maybe are in playing gifts and want to do more major gifts. And by the way, I'm saying all this with air quotes. So people know, I mean, it's not that serious in terms of the distinctions, but someone who's listening, who does want to do more major gifts work, you know, you told us that you need, you know, thicker skin and patience and perseverance, but what else do you think you wish you had known, or what would you have told yourself then that, you know, now that would be hopeful advice for our listeners? Any sort of fundraising is is basically doing what your grandmother taught you, you know, uh, listening, saying thank you. Uh, when someone when you tell someone you're going to do something, you do it. And then you know the emotional intelligence of when to press a little bit, when to back off a little bit, you know, hearing what someone is saying under what they're saying. And everyone I've met in this field is good at that, whether they know it or not. So I, I think it's just get over your fear. And go out there and, and have fun. Consider it like this. This is fun, and I'll I'll take my lumps. Um, just the other day, Catherine, I had a guy at lunch say, "I'm I'm ready. I've I've decided what I'm going to do for DePaul and my estate." And I said, "That's fantastic." And he starts off saying, "I have an IRA with 3.5 million dollars, so I'm trying to stay in my seat." And he goes, "And DePaul will get two percent of that," which was a bit of a letdown. <laughs> Uh, that didn't happen because I said um when I asked and it didn't happen because I I didn't were the perfect email two months ago and it didn't happen because I didn't form a relationship with him it happened because that's where he's at it might have happened because that's about how philanthropic he is it might have happened because he has family situations I know nothing about when I think about plain giving there's two pieces there's telling the institution that they've included them in their estate. And then there's documenting that commitment. I've heard, you know, different schools of thought in terms of how important the actual documentation of the number is versus not. And obviously that's often tied to campaigns, but how do you think about the best use of your time when donors have made commitments that are not documented how do you parse that out for yourself i always want to do what's best for the institution whether it helps my metrics or not Mm -hmm. um and so if you that now different institutions work differently on this if you tell me that you've included the university in your estate plan but you're reluctant to, to sign anything and that that's often oh i don't know what it'll be i gotta live on this money for the rest of my life blah 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 and i get it um, I'm going to put you in our Cordelou Heritage Society, and I'm going to treat you like anybody else. And by the way, I'm going to keep trying subtly to get that gift documented, of course. Mm-hmm. As far as the institution goes, the most important thing is that the money eventually comes in, not that we book it this year. You know, um, So that, that's always going to be my priority. And I think I spend plenty of time over the course of the year doing things that are not that are going to make sure those gifts still come in. And again, that, that goes to writing handwritten notes to my folks in the Coeur d'Alene Heritage Society and, and making sure that they feel valued 
and doing other things. I, I had a situation where I had a lady up in the Twin Cities and she would always tell me how she uh, was from Munich, North Dakota. And she was in her 90s and she grew up in Munich and what would that be, the 30s and 40s. And her father was the grocer in this tiny little farming town. And I was going up to see her for her birthday. She was leaving us everything, Catherine. She couldn't leave us anymore. And she wow. was leaving. And so I would tell my boss, I'm going to go see her three times a year at least because it's the right thing to do and because we don't have the money yet. She can change her mind. Anyway, she calls me about two weeks before I'm about to go take her to lunch for her birthday. And she says, I have a big favor to ask. And I go, what is it? And she says, would you drive me? She, her lawyer was in Devil's Lake, North Dakota. Would you drive me to Devil's Lake to see my lawyer and my accountant? which is seven hours from the Twin Cities. Oh my gosh. I know, I know. Again, <laughs> Catherine, this is a lady making a seven-figure gift and is leaving us everything she has. And I went to my boss and I said, this will not result in an additional gift for DePaul. It's impossible to get an additional gift from someone who's leaving you everything she has. I think I should do this. Um, and two, two little side notes to that story. She passed away. She, th that will remained intact. The other is she used to work for DePaul and hmm. people who work for DePaul know each other. And I've been told more than once by others that they heard about that story. And so that's not why I did it, but good things tend to come back around when you do the right thing. Yeah. And we're always trying to create this sense in people's minds, boy, those people from DePaul, they're good people. They're doing good work and they, and they care about you as people. And I just think it helps. So that did not help my metrics that year, but it was the right thing to do. And I think it worked out for DePaul. So you drove her for seven hours in the car. Oh, not only, yeah, we drove. <laughs> well, 14. Four, there and back, we, 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 we stopped in, in Grand, I picked her up at 7 a.m. We stopped in, is it Grand Forks, North Dakota for lunch? That's where the University of North Dakota is. We went and saw her sorority house, just drove by it. She was ticked off because they added on to it and she thought they wrecked it then we drove and met with the lawyer at two about 3 30 she wanted to say a prayer at church and we went over to the, to the church in devil's lake north dakota then she looked at me sheepishly and said can we go to munich which is about 40 minutes away up towards the canada line and what do you what am i supposed to say no gloria i gotta get back to the hotel there's oh a game goodness. on tonight uh of course we can go to munich we go to Munich. She shows me her grandparents' house, her house, her father's grocery store. And then she says, I have a cousin's widow that still lives here. We stop by the cousin's house and she serves us rhubarb pie. And it doesn't get any more Americana than that. <clears throat> and then we, uh, we had to drive back to Grand Forks where our hotel is because you can't drive back the seven hours. Um, and uh, uh, it, was, it was a marvelous experience that I'll never forget. And I was so privileged that DePaul let me do it and that I got the chance to do it. I got to take Gloria home for the last time. Uh, Great, that's so what it could, sounds like. Yeah, it was it was neat. I, I wouldn't change a thing about it. That's that's amazing. That's a great example of how to steward a donor who's left you their entire estate. But what are other ways that you thank donors once they have documented their plans and and confirmed their gifts? Like I say, I, I have a whole list of people that, again, are, are leaving us a substantial gift. I don't think we'll get an increase in that gift. They get lunches. 
-hmm. you know, um, you, you, I don't have to tell you this. Loneliness is in, uh, an epidemic yeah. in society and it's sad, but what's not said about it is part of my job is I get to relieve that a little bit for people mm -hmm. that are really nice people that are, that are interesting, that I care about, that I have a job to do with. So there's that. I also do handwritten notes till my hand falls off. Uh, every Christmas season, I'm sending out holiday cards. Uh, everybody, 500 some odd people in our Cordelou Heritage Society get a holiday card. Everybody in my portfolio gets a handwritten holiday card. Uh, when we have a Cordelou Heritage Society event, if you're out of state with the invitation, you'll get a handwritten note from me saying, hey, Catherine, I'm, I'm guessing you won't be in Chicago on June 30th, but if you are, we'd love to see you. I just want you to know how grateful we are for what you've done for DePaul. There's people you call. There was one fellow at the beginning of the pandemic, I knew he'd be sitting in his apartment all by himself until this pandemic uh, ended. And I said, hey, John, what if I called you every Monday? And we just checked in for five minutes. And he said, Rich, that would be great. So five minutes of my Monday, once a week, you, you give John a call. How you doing, John? Oh, this pandemic's driving me crazy. Yeah, me too. Can you hear what you? And then it, and that, and and that didn't cost me much of my time. But he has told me more than once how that helped him get through the pandemic. Now, I couldn't do that for everybody, but he was the 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 right person at the right time to do that. And again, his generosity since then has reflected his deeper connection with the institution because of it. You know, you, you can't you, you can't forget the fundraising side of our job as you're building these relationships, of course, that would be disingenuous if you did. Right. I laughed when you said that the donor told you they had, you know, three plus million in their IRA, dot, 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 and they would be documenting 2% to DePaul. But we've all heard that so many times, you know, we hold our breath to hear the percentage. How have you been able to increase that or or do you try to increase that when you hear that answer and it's in all of its variations? How do you handle that? I don't try to increase it right then. Right. Then I, I just gush with thanks. And I am grateful. That's still $70,000. You know, that's a, that's a lot of money. I think you try to increase that. Uh, you steward that gift. Uh, you welcome them into the Cordillou Heritage Society. You get them to a few events. I, I have this Cordelou Heritage Society blanket. I never bring it on the day they document because I want another visit to do that. I want another right. visit to celebrate it. That's fine. Um, maybe three years from now, when we're in the middle of a public phase of the campaign, is when we start talking about increasing that. Maybe it's maybe it's a year from now. It depends on the donor, but it certainly isn't at that lunch. It certainly isn't until we've celebrated that gift yeah. and shown our gratitude for that gift. But yeah, I think you increase it by building and deepening the relationship and finding his passions. Maybe what he's given to you right now is not his passion. We'll need to find that out. Um, Did you ask him what the other 97% was going towards? I didn't. That might've been a good question. I, I just figured it was going for his kids and grandkids. Mm -hmm. um, I know from knowing him, he has one other charity that he ranks up there with the Paul. Mm -hmm. um, so I assume that they're getting a similar sized gift, but no, I didn't, I didn't probe into that at this meeting. There's time for that, of course, but not at this meeting. I, I like that you're really strategic in the timing of sort of the information gathering. So you listened. How important is listening? 
you know, you talk about loneliness, you talk about the importance of connection. Um, what does that do for people to listen? You probably heard this, but you don't talk your way to a gift. You listen your way to a gift from a donor. And it's absolutely central to what we do. It's central to any human relationship for people to feel heard, for people to feel that you are genuinely interested in their story. And, and lucky for me, I am. I am interested in their story. And um, I do want to get to know them mainly for human reasons, but it also helps me to get to know them, helps me to do my job. Mm -hmm. um, so, and it, it is a balance, you know, the, the loneliness is a double-edged sword. I, I do want to be uh, something positive in people's life, but I never would want to use that loneliness for my purposes. Right. It's delicate. It is delicate. And that's where your emotional intelligence comes in. Mm -hmm. And that's where your candor comes in. I am here. I do find your story interesting. And that's completely true. I do care about you. But I'm also here as a representative of DePaul. Right. And I'm here to explore or thank you for your philanthropy to DePaul. That needs to start in meeting number one so that it's clear you can't play golf with someone five times before you start talking about philanthropy. No. That, that is disingenuous. That is implying something that's not true. You are not there just to play golf with them. You are there both to get to know them, but also to explore possibility of additional philanthropy to, to, to Paul. So it's a balance, don't you think? Absolutely, yes. You can get so close to someone that it makes it almost impossible to ask them for money. And when you do that, you're not doing your job. Right. But you can get appropriately close to someone. So, you know, you do care about them. You feel sad when things happen to them or when, you know, in my case, been doing this for so long when they pass away. But always, always, always out of respect for them as much as anything, it's clear then that you are there to do a job to talk to them about philanthropy or to thank them for their past philanthropy for sure. I mean, sometimes mm -hmm. somebody's done. It's, you know, if you tell me you're done, I will believe you. If you, yes. tell, if, if you told someone five years ago you were done, you haven't told me you were done. So that's a different story. Right. I'm, I might have to hear it before I believe it. But if you tell me you're done, I will believe you. But I'm still going to steward you again with estate gifts. I, we don't have the money yet. It's the right thing to do. Introducing philanthropy early and often is the way to keep that relationship authentic. I agree with you. Tell us the auto story. I get the quirky ones, which I love. <laughs> and um, I uh, had a, a former colleague say, hey, I met this guy at one of our events. I think you should go have coffee with him. And I did. And he was um, he was pretty set what he was going to do with his estate. And I was like, hey, I'm not going to knock him off that. I'm not even going to try. That would be wrong and disrespectful. It was another charity for something very close to his heart. And it was a good charity. I'll, if you want to give you another charity, I'll advise you on it. I don't want to. I'm not trying to talk anybody out of that. Well, anyway, I was kind of like not investing much in him. Uh, but then I looked and I saw his 80th birthday was coming and having met with him and knowing that he didn't have a lot going on, 
-hmm. I said, I, I got to take him to lunch for his 80th birthday. So I said, where do you want to go to lunch? And he wanted to go, anybody that's been to Chicago knows about the Berghoff, which is where my father-in-law went in the 60s when he was out in Chicago for business, an old German restaurant right in the middle of the loop. And he said, I want to go to the Berghoff. We sit down at the Berghoff and he proceeds to inform me that this is the first time he has been to lunch anywhere out to eat in 40 years. Um, he lost a job in 1981 and uh, he had this building that he grew up in that his parents owned, a multi-unit building, and he just lived off the rent since then. He also had not bought a new article of clothing in that 40 years. He said, I'm, after lunch, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to walk down to the Brooks Brothers in the Loop and I'm going to buy myself a sweater. And I said, Otto, I would love to walk down to Brooks Brothers with you if you would let me. This is a momentous occasion. And we walked down to where Brooks Brothers was and it's closed. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, the, the one in the loop closed thanks to the pandemic. And so actually uh, about a month later, I took him up to a mall where there is a Brooks Brothers and he got his sweater, uh, his first new article of clothing in 40 years. Um, Otto had resources because this building was in a very desirable neighborhood. Uh, the moment uh, that building is sold, it will be knocked down to build $5 million condos. But it, 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 was, a, it was a privilege for me to do that with him. But again, as we were talking about five minutes ago, Otto knew at every moment that I was there on business as well. Uh, you know, the, the, his, his 80th birthday, we might not have talked about philanthropy, but every other time we sat down, we talked about philanthropy. So I, I get those stories and they're wonderful stories. And, and I'm glad that Otto, I value our lunches and I'm glad that he does too and that they're meaningful to him. Now, was that, was his gift one that, so your colleague identified him, but did you work with him on that? Well, he actually had since left to Paul. So no one had called on Otto in, in years. And so I was the first. So he ended up in my portfolio because you know the, my colleague just gave me a little tip on his way out the door. Right. Um, oh, I see. I see. So it worked, it, it worked out good. And and you know, it, it, as it turns out, we were talking about bigger philanthropy with Otto, and he has decided to revert to where he's going to leave his estate. And I told him I thought that was great and I was happy for him. So it didn't end up being a gift, even though we were talking about a fairly big gift for a while. Yeah. I mean, I think with that story, what's so incredible is that we cannot make assumptions. No, you can't. You can't look at someone and decide, or like, I loved what you said, look at a spreadsheet and say, oh, this person is this or that, or they're going to do this or that. No, people are complicated creatures. Well, and it's the whole millionaire next door thing. And that's why right. every time you pick up the phone, you treat someone like they're a trustee of the university because mm -hmm. you don't know. And, and A, because it's the right thing to do. Right, right. But you also don't know. You don't know. And I, we could sit here and we could talk for another two hours about the surprises, the people that no metrics would have predicted, but were sitting on multiple seven-figure estate and wanted to help others through their estate. So yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, leaving charity in an IRA or other retirement plan is one of the, is the most beneficial plan gift 
for 95% of the US population right there. Boom. That's all you got to know. It's a taxable thing to your loved ones. It's not a taxable thing to charity. It's like it's like Uncle Sam chipping in 30% of the gift or more. It makes all the sense in the world. It's easy to do. All you got to do is get a beneficiary designation form. If you know that and the fact that they can include you in their will, you got 80% of it right there. What's the biggest estate you've documented? Biggest estate gift like or plan gift would be a lead trust that was... Uh, multiple eight figures for DePaul uh, a couple of years ago. It was just announced, although they didn't announce the amount. I'm sorry, I can't share that. Um, so that, but- Well, eight trust, figures is, say yeah, okay. <laughs> it, it means a lot. It means a lot at DePaul. We're not getting that's a lot. Every, we're not getting those every week. Right. Um, so that was really fun to work on. I was more the back office technician on that running calculations mm -hmm. and advising my colleague who was working with the donors, but it was very exciting and very fun. Um, I'm trying to think of the biggest estate that I ever worked on. I don't know that it got to eight figures for just a pure estate gift. That's a great question. I'd have to think about that one. Yeah, I know I'm putting you on the spot, but I just think it's good to give people context that this is, this is serious. This is big business, you know, and it's going to help you get to your campaign goal to really be working with people in this way. Well, I, I mean, I always say when people are giving you, most people, when they're giving you an, a, an outright gift, even a um, major gift, they're giving you from a small pie of what they can afford to give away right now. So if it's an annual gift, it's their disposable income. You might, you'll get into their assets for a major outright gift during life, but it's not, they're not dividing up their entire wealth right then but they are at the, at the end of their lives. And so it's a bigger pie. So a piece of that pie, it can be incredibly meaningful. And everyone's organization has a plan giving story about a giant estate. Maybe it came in over the transom. Maybe you had no idea how much it was going to be. And you would think it would make everyone believers in plan giving, but it often doesn't work that way. They just think, oh, that fell out of the sky. No, no, we can work this. We can, we can, increase this we can have it happen more often we can it can be planned so we know it's coming mm -hmm. if we work it so rich thank you so much for talking with us about your work and i would love to close with my signature question which is what do you know for sure you know what i know for sure is something i heard from um, bill sturdivant who worked at the university of illinois foundation and passed away last year great guy and one of the best fundraisers i've ever been around and he said, uh, people don't give to build buildings. They don't give to see their name up in lights. They don't give for tax reasons. They don't give for their uh, egos. People give to touch lives, change lives, save lives. So when you're writing a donor, when you are coming up with a pamphlet, when you are thinking of a, of a campaign slogan, when you are talking with a donor, People give to touch lives, change lives, and save lives. How is your institution touching lives, changing lives, or saving lives? That's what you should be focused on. That should be in every email that you send. That should be what you are telling the donor they will be able to do through generosity to your institution. And so I think Bill was spot on, and that's the thing about fundraising that I know for sure. Thank you so much, Rich. Great to meet you, Catherine. Thank you for this opportunity.
I love when Rich said, nothing can stop you if you have both arrows in your quiver. Plan, giving, and major gifts. He also reminds us to keep our eye out for the millionaire next door. And last but not least, never turn down a slice of rhubarb pie. Thank you, Rich, for your tips. And we'll see you next week for an extra special episode 100. Have a great week, and I can't wait to see you then.